Hi, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm Tova Leiter, moderator and director of the New York Film Academy Guest Lecture Series. In this episode, we will take an in-depth look at one of my great guests and hear about his experience in the entertainment industry. And now, Eric Conner will take you through the highlights of this Q&A. Hi, I'm Eric Conner, senior instructor at New York Film Academy. And in this episode, we bring you the director of The Orphanage, A Monster Calls, and most recently, a little film called Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, J.A. Bayona. I mean, for me, everything comes from my childhood. The first memory in my life is a shot from Superman. So that tells you a lot about me. <laughs> I don't have a memory where I was deciding I want to be a filmmaker, I want to be a director. It was always there. Before directing T-Rexes and Raptors, Mr. Bayona helmed the gut-wrenching drama The Impossible. It's based on one family's story of survival during the 2004 tsunami in Thailand. After screening the film for our students, Mr. Bayona focused much of his conversation on this remarkable and powerful film. So you might want to familiarize yourself with it before listening. Do you know the most scary bit for me? When the water hit. If another wave catches us down here, we will die. The scariest part, when I came up, that was all on my own. I won't stop looking until I find I'll look in all the hospitals and I'll look in all the shelters. I will find them, I promise you that. Mr. Bayona's story is fascinating, tracing how he went from film school student to eventually helming a billion-dollar grossing film. Though he admits he actually learned a lot more as a teacher. Been um, a student in film school for four years, and then I was six years more teaching. I learned much more teaching than <laughs> as a student. As a student, I, I spent too much time on the bar. <laughs> You learn a lot of things on the bar. I mean, but the truth is that I, I really learned a lot uh, in teaching, probably because uh, it's kind of like you need to be thinking all the time about why are you doing what you what, what are you doing. And as a director, I never, I always follow my instinct when choosing the script, in, in working the script, uh, in working with the actors. For me, it's all about instinct. This is uh, how you really find your voice. And, and, and there's a lot of also of uh, intellectualization after that. But <laughs> the first thing is instinct. What was the question? <laughs> Mr. Bayona's instinct and talent helped quickly launch his career as a music video and commercial director. Meanwhile, he continued his film education the same way a lot of us do, by watching DVDs and their extras. When I finished school, I immediately started to work in uh, commercial and music videos. And it was uh, me with all these people in the bar working doing music videos. And the truth is that we had a great school in there because we do everything ourselves. So I learned a lot of visual effects in working in, in commercials and, and music videos. Uh, so when I got to the moment of doing this film, I was very involved in, in the preparation. And also I, I used to watch a lot of extras on DVDs, so you, you, you can more or less have a, a sense of how does it work watching that. I think it's very useful to know how it works, the Photoshop, you know, uh, because it, when you work in, in post-production, everything is made on layers also. So at the end, it's a question of having this knowledge of how could a shot be composed in layers. Uh, you, and also, the, I, I really like the fact of using as much uh, real as possible the way James Cameron always says he does. So I think the one good trick is to use uh, all the time different techniques. 
don't lay only in CGI or in miniatures. So there's a moment where the, the eyes get confused and the audience doesn't know what they're watching. And I think that's very interesting. In 2007, J.A. Bayona directed the chilling Spanish-language horror film The Orphanage, produced by the legendary Guillermo del Toro. It's terrifying, and you should watch it, you know, if you're not too scared. The Orphanage went on to become one of Spain's biggest blockbusters, which meant Mr. Bayona then got his pick of the litter from more horror films. But he didn't want to be pigeonholed. After I finished uh, The Orphanage, I was offered all the horror remakes and sequels you could imagine. (laughs) But you need to find something exciting. And sometimes, not sometimes, but very often, you need to find something different. I mean, this is why, even though I I feel that uh, Impossible is very close to the orphanage, it doesn't have nothing to do at the same time. So so you need to find something new, something challenging. Uh, I would love to do another horror movie, for example, but I'm kind of sometimes... You don't find enough excitement in doing another horror movie, so you really need to... I don't know, I mean... I don't like to think about genre, for example. What genre would you like to work? You go to... uh, Your agent tells you, what genre would you like to do? I don't know. I mean, I don't think about the genre. I mean, for me, a film is about the story and especially what lies beyond the story. And what lies beyond the story is always you. You need to find yourself in there. I mean, I'm kind of like Polanski. You can notice that he's a film lover. Because if you take a look at his uh, filmography, he can do a pirate movie, a horror movie, a drama from the Holocaust. I mean, he can do everything. I mean, he can do a comedy. I mean, he loves movies and he likes to tell the the stories from, from his point of view. And this is what I'm looking for. The success of The Orphanage eventually enabled Mr. Bayona to direct his 2012 follow-up feature, The Impossible. I was very lucky, the fact that The Orphanage was a huge success in Spain. It was the biggest uh, Spanish film ever in Spanish. So, so that helped me in having the, the trust of the producers in, in, in doing this film. I remember it, um, I was working in another film, uh, with, also with Sergio. It didn't, I mean, I don't know why, but at the end we, we, it was another director doing that after work, being working on a script for I don't know, it was nine months. So the day after this story appeared uh, by coincidence and a producer heard the story in a radio show and she came to me and, and she tried to explain, tries because she couldn't get to the end, she was too emotional and I found myself exactly the same. So I realized that there was something very brutal and primal and, and that talks about something that goes beyond the fact of the tsunami or, or the context of the tsunami. And I wanted to explore what was that because uh, definitely was making this story something that goes beyond uh, the context to make it something more universal. And I wanted to figure out what was that. And then uh, we, we had the script ready. We were working on the script for maybe yeah, nine months, six, nine months. And we went to the actors and they loved it. They loved the script, they loved the orphanage. So everything happened very easily, surprisingly. Even a movie like The Impossible, with its built-in real-life drama, needs stars to get off the ground. Fortunately, Mr. Bayona was able to cast the talented Naomi Watts and Ewan McGregor. I always was a huge fan of Naomi and, and Ewan. 
And it's a question of instinct, and I could see them doing these characters, probably because I see them not as Hollywood actors, because they've been doing lots of different stuff with European movies, independent movies. Uh, so I, I felt them very close to me. And I, I think that um, Naomi is very good in portraying dark sides of life. She's very good getting close to a tragic sense of storytelling. And, and I think uh, Ewan is a, a guy who's very easy to get a sense of empathy and, right. and intimacy with, with him. So, so I felt them right. The, the main challenge was uh, to work in a different language. I mean, I, I talk English now better than before, but <laughs> it's not my first language. So, so that was definitely the main challenge. Uh, in, I mean, right now, even doing Q&As, you want to talk about life and death and you found yourself having some problems in going into a specific. So can you imagine how I felt in the set with the actors sometimes? But the truth is that we had a very good relationship. We trust a lot to each other. From the very beginning, I, I wanted to have a long time of rehearsals and we created a strong bond there and, and, and it went really well. In fact, because Ewan had to shoot another movie, he was shooting uh, Salmon Fishing in Yemen. So he came, I was surprised. I thought people in Hollywood, they, they do more rehearsals than what they do really. I mean, to, to talk to the agents about having a time for rehearsals, I was surprised about that because it seems that they don't rehearse that much. I mean, I'm talking about my experience, so I really, maybe I'm saying that and I, I don't know, but probably every director is different. I'm, I, I know that Naomi has been working with directors where she did a lot of rehearsals, but I was surprised how tough it was to find time to do rehearsals. But the truth is that with Naomi, we spent three weeks with Naomi and Tom doing rehearsals. Uh, with uh, you and we, we had the chance of uh, working some days before the shooting of the salmon fishing. After finishing the salmon fishing, he came, joined us, and we were doing rehearsal for an extra week. So we had a good preparation. The Impossible is not your average disaster film. The film focuses not only on the tsunami's deadly destruction, but the humans who banded together to survive. So this story needed to rely on more than special effects alone. First of all, you need to choose the, the, the best actor possible and also the one who fits in the character. So you, the cast is a very important part in creating the character and creating the performance. In this film, I remember there was a lot of work in the set to get to this level of exhaustion. So I remember there was a moment that I didn't cut between takes, especially because you need to waste so much time between takes. You realize that you're not helping the actors, that they, they are losing the moment. So, so even though we were shooting on film, I, I was all the time shooting take after take with no poses in the middle. So I remember instead of saying cut, going back to first position all the time. It's a very interesting story because uh, as a filmmaker, I realized that you never had a thought of what are they doing. I mean, because these characters, they didn't have time to stop and think about that. So there is no moment in the story where they stop and think about what is happening, except for the moment where you can see this old lady in the mountains with the kid, Geraldine Chaplin, she really has some thoughts about life and death in that moment. You like looking at stars, don't you? Some of those stars have been burnt out for a long, long time. How can you tell which ones are dead and which ones are not? Oh, you can't. It's impossible. It's a beautiful mystery, isn't it? But in the rest of the film, it's not. there's not a pause. It's all about getting a sense of urgency. But we talk a lot uh, with the actors about the moments, about what was the meaning of every specific situation. For example, I'll tell you that 
I had this email, very long email from Maria, the real Maria, uh, telling me about the connection that she had with this old time man who rescues her. And even in that moment, there were no lines, uh, there were no dialogues. It was just about this man dragging her in the mud. So I, I got to the, to the set that day thinking all, all, all the time, how can I do that? I mean, I don't, I don't have space in there. I mean, I don't have dialogues. I was thinking all day about that. And, and right before lunch, I, I decided to shoot a shot of Naomi's eyes. And I came to her and, and I, of course, she read the four pages of the email. And I found a moment 10 minutes before we, we stopped shooting that day to prepare the shot. So we, we, we put the camera on her. And uh, I really like to work with music on the set all the time because it helps not just the actors, but the whole crew to get into the mood. So I remember I put the camera on her eyes and it was a long piece of music around seven minutes. So we were shooting her eyes for seven minutes with this music that goes higher and higher and higher. And there was a moment that Naomi's eyes were going to explode in front of the camera. She knew what she was doing. She knew the, the meaning of that, that scene because she read that four-page email. So putting them together, the shot of the, the old-time man and, and Naomi's eyes, everything was in, in there. Before he became our newest web-slinger and joined the Avengers, Tom Holland came to international acclaim playing Naomi Watts' 13-year-old son. To be honest, I am still baffled how he did not get an Oscar nomination for this film. Mr. Bayona explained how the future Spider-Man showed a maturity well beyond his years. I will never consider uh, Tom Holland as a child actor because uh, he, even though he was 13 when we were shooting the film, he was already working in West London playing Billy Elliot for three years. So he was the central piece of a stage play with 100 actors more. So, so he had this strong sense of uh, responsibility. So I, I treat him exactly the same than, than Naomi or Yuan. For me, he, it was like working with an adult. And he's an extraordinary actor, extraordinary. So I never treat him as a kid. And talking about working with kids, I think you need to find the balance between create a sense of responsibility in them because they're working. So going to a set is going to school. Uh, so I treat them like the teacher. I mean, they need to behave. They need to understand they have their responsibilities. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you need to make them enjoy all the time because they're kids. So if they get bored, uh, it's a problem. So, <laughs> I mean, they could lose focus on the scene. or, or so, so it's a balance of make them enjoy and at the same time being responsible. Also, there was a huge commitment from the actors. I mean, from the rehearsals, we set the tone of the film and, and it was clear that we had responsibility in telling the story of not just this family, but all the people who was there. So we felt that, not just me, but uh, the, the crew and the actors. We shot exactly in the same places where the story uh, happened, in the same pool, in the same uh, hospital, in the same hotel. I mean, and, and, and we were living every day with the Thai crew, dealing with them, knowing stories uh, from survivors mm -hmm. who were uh, extras in the set or people who we were talking uh, every day when you finish the shooting, you go to a restaurant and the owner has a story about the tsunami and you want to know that, they want to tell you. And, and so there is a moment that you're very surrounded by reality and that gives you a, a strong sense of responsibility. Considering this film was based on the all-too-real events surrounding the tsunami, Mr. Bayona felt that much more pressure to ensure the movie was accurate. During production, he collaborated closely with Maria Ballone, the brave woman whose family was the inspiration for the impossible. 
from the moment I I knew I was going to do a film about Sammy, of course, uh, you, you you try to get in contact with as much people as possible. So we met some people in Europe, and then we went to Thailand. We met some people in there. There's a lot of stories on the internet also. And of course, we work very close with the family, especially with Maria. She worked with Sergio very close in, in the script. And at the end, I mean, I was telling about the authority of doing a film. I mean, you need to feel the authority. I found the authority not in the things related to the tragedy, but in related in human nature. I mean, I, I felt how emotional it was for me, how these people found their dignity in those moments, and how important was the legacy between the mother and the kid. If you think about the orphanage, it's also a story about a mother and a kid in extreme context. You know? I mean, so, so this is where I found the authority. This is why I say that the film goes beyond the context of the tragedy to talk in a more universal way. But the truth is that at the end, you're doing a portrait of what was to be there. So you, you, we met a lot of people and wanted to create a big picture of what was the experience of being a foreigner in there. And also, we wanted to tell the story from all the points of view. But we wanted to be very attached to the point of view of the family because it's the kind of... I like to work the stories from the point of view of one character. In, in this movie, it was five characters, but it's, for me, it's like one character. But these people had to be in contact with the rest of the people. I remember the first conversation we had with Maria. It was obvious that this has to be the story of this family, but also of many, many people who was there. Also the Thai people. From the very beginning, I never wanted to separate Thai people from foreign people. This is not a film about nationalities. This is why we don't say where the family is coming from. They're coming from the outside. And when they went back home, they feel their, their world has changed. They don't feel secure anymore. But we don't talk about nationalities. So, so I never wanted to portray the Thai people as only as victims. And one of the things I got in talking to survivors and talking to people who lost people there is that no matter if they lose people or no, no matter if they survive, all the people was talking about the Thai people with wonderful words. So I want them to portray also, especially from the point of view of the gratitude of the people who was there, because this was a movie made from the point of view of someone from the outside who goes there. So all these uh, arguments, all, all these things you find in talking to the people who was there talking to the family especially, uh, but talking to a lot of uh, Thai people, volunteers, uh, that's it. He also found inspiration in documentary and home video footage of the events, though not always in the ways he expected. I remember watching a, a documentary called Tsunami Caught on Camera. And in fact, there, there were a couple of, of moments in that documentary that we share on the script. I mean, we, we have these moments in the script, so, so I was surprised when I, when I saw the documentary, and, and it, it's all based on real footage. And I was surprised to, to see those moments in real footage in that documentary. There was a moment in the documentary where you can see kids opening their Christmas presents. And if you have the face of a kid really opening a present and you can catch that moment, I mean, the sense of empathy with just right. one shot is right. immediate. So we prepared that scene like if it was real footage. So we did it for real. We didn't tell the kids that the, the presents were there. So they were surprised. They, they, they found uh, the presents. And, and, and you can see the faces of the kids. And, and you create a sense of intimacy and, right. and, and empathy. Mr. Bayona gives much of the credit for the film to its writer, Sergio Sanchez, who also collaborated with him on The Orphanage. 
Serge is a brilliant screenwriter. I mean, uh, you can you can feel reading his lines. I mean, it's not just a description of what is happening. It's he's also a, a, a filmmaker. He has shot a couple of short films and uh, some film for TV. So so he really is able to capture emotion in when he's writing, and that's very helpful. Not just. Uh, for me, but also, for, of course, for the actors. The truth is that it was a very, very emotional story from the very beginning. Uh, as I told you, the first time I was uh, telling the story to my friends, there were moments I had to stop because I was overwhelmed by emotion. And I wanted to figure out where that was coming from. It's a disaster movie. I mean, you can call it a disaster movie. It's a film that talks about survival in, in a not conventional way. It's not just about if you live or you die. There's a lot of suffering also in survival. I mean, there's a reality of emotions. I like the fact that, that you, you tell the story from the point of view of, of a foreign family. So uh, it talks not just about a survival story, it talks about this kind of like a coming of age story, not just for Lucas, the character played by Tom Holland, but, but for the whole family, because it, it tells about the ending of a world, of a world of innocence, of a world of materialistic things that they don't use, they don't have uh, I use anymore at the end. I mean, I like the fact that the end how you can see this guy from the insurance company appears. Mm. This guy who looks like a guy from another planet <laughs> wearing a suit. I'm Oliver Tudpole from Zurich Insurance. That's something to take care of your family. You have nothing to worry about now. This guy represents the real world for them, but mm. the, the world is not the same anymore for them. And I thought that that, that was very interesting. And uh, of, of, of course, I am a foreigner in Thailand, so it was the most honest way to approach to the tragedy also. And I like the fact that the heroism in the story, in the characters, doesn't rely in what they do for survive. I mean, the, the heroism relies in what they do for the other ones. There is a moment in, in the story where the, the mother, who was a doctor, she knew that she was bleeding to death. But even though that, she wanted to go and help this little boy that was asking for help. Wait. Did you hear that? Boom. There's nothing we can do. Wait, we are almost there. We have to get to safety. Well, we have to help that boy. So she was choosing in that moment what might be the last act in her life. Yeah. I mean, if you talk about life in story, there's a moment that you realize that you cannot control life, but you can control your decisions. And what this woman was doing was choosing her last act, and she chose a lesson of what was the right thing to do. So the heroine realized not in what they do for survive, but what they do for keep their dignity as human beings. And I thought that was very emotional. On a technical scale, this movie had its work cut out for it. It needed to convince us that we were seeing the same tsunami that we all witnessed on TV back in 2004. You throw in working with young actors, filming on water, and a multilingual crew, it's no wonder this movie was called The Impossible. Everything looks... Uh, looked like impossible when we started to work on this. In fact, the, the title was kind of like a joke at the beginning. We were saying, <laughs> we're gonna do the impossible. Because everything, I mean, we were dealing with kids, very young kids, we were dealing with water in a shooting in another country, in another language, with Hollywood stars. I mean, everything felt like challenging. Uh, the logistics were very difficult. I mean, to, to go every day to the set and to have all the people in there, it was an epic uh, shooting. I mean, there was thousands of extras. Uh, there was a uh, hundred people that fly to Thailand from the crew, and there was an ex uh, there was a hundred people more from the Thai crew. So everything was uh, kind of difficult. 
So I don't know. I, apparently, the, the, the difficult thing was to put all the pieces together, and especially the, as a director, the, to balance the emotions in the story. I mean, first of all, to be close to the people who was there, try to be respectful, and then to balance. I mean, it was a very emotional shooting. Just be there in every moment, and we don't have a limit. And then we measure all these emotions in the editing room. The truth is that it was very challenging because uh, the, the emotions doesn't work in a conventional way uh, in a situation like, like that. I mean, you can see in that scene with you and McGregor in the bus station, you can see how the guy goes from zero to 100. That's the way emotion work. Maria and Lucas are not here. What do you mean, not there? The motion came and swept everyone away. And the phone, the phone... <laughs> you can see the moment when the kids come together and it's pure joy. I remember talking to Lucas and he was telling me to cry was a privilege. We didn't have time to cry. And we cried when we had a moment of release. So for him, he was telling me the moment I met my brothers, it was the happiest moment in my life. It's very simple. There's no more explanation. And the whole idea of the film was to create an emotional journey in the audience, to put them into a theater and to send them back home with no explanation, because this is what these people lived. These people, they went to Thailand. They, they were expecting to have uh, happy holidays. What they, what they had was a horrible experience. And, and then at the end, someone put them into an empty plane and sent them back home with no explanation. So I wanted to create the same feeling in the audience, to, to live the moments of anguish, uh, the moments of fear, the moments of uh, relief, of happiness, of joy. Of course, not at the same level, but try to make an emotional journey on the, on the audience and then send them back home with no explanation. So, the, so you leave the audience a chance of having their own interpretation on the story. J.A. Bayona has done some truly magical work, taming raptors in Jurassic World, bringing a talking tree to life in A Monster Calls, and capturing the real-life horrors of a tsunami. But his initial inspiration as a storyteller, like most of ours, came from his own life. I think my childhood... I mean, it's your own personality. I mean, you need to follow that. And then you start to meet people, you go to film school. You have a lot of references. I mean, you, you like Spielberg movies, for example. But there is a moment that that is only useful to put your personality, and it's a question of instinct. It's not, it's not a plan prepared. I mean, it's just follow your instinct, follow what moves you, what, what makes you laugh. Truffaut used to say that uh, movies are a mix of what you would like to live, what you had lived, and what would you be scared of living. I mean, for me, everything comes from my childhood. The first memory in my life is a shot from Superman. So that tells you a lot about me. <laughs> I mean, it's a, I, I don't have a memory where I was deciding I want to be a filmmaker, I want to be a director. I don't have that memory. It was always there. But there is a moment that, that you, you use that all the references, all your knowledge all that you had in school to just follow your instinct. And this is where you find your voice. This is very important. I remember when I was a, a teacher uh, at film school, the first thing I used to say to students was, listen to everybody and yeah. don't listen to anybody. I mean, it's like, just follow your instinct. Just try to get as much information as possible and then follow your instinct. This is for me what the storytelling is about when you want to tell a story from your point of view. We want to thank J.A. Bayona for making the impossible possible and sharing his film and his experiences with our students. And thanks to all of you for listening. This episode was based on the Q&A moderated and produced by Toba Leiter. 
To watch the full interview or to see our other Q&As, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash New York Film Academy. This episode was written by me, Eric Connor, edited and mixed by Christian Hayden. Our creative director is David Andrew Nelson, who also produced this episode with Christian Hayden and myself. Executive produced by Tova Leiter, Jean Sherlock, and Dan Mackler. A special thanks to our events department, Saja Johnson, and the staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See you next time.